Let's right. get to it. Let's get All to right. it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Grinds My Gears. I'm Ashton, and thank you for joining me today. Before I get started, log on to www.ashton.mma.com. Grab your Dilfbod shirt. Represent that Dilfbod. Use discount code D-I-L-F. Get yourself 10% off and uh, show your man some love. Those sexy Dilfbods out there. Today, I got with me Professor Jason McDonald. I call him Professor, but... Everyone else calls him Jay McDonald. <laughs> How you doing, Jay? I'm good. How you doing, Ashton? It's I'm Jay good. Mac. Jay <laughs> Mac, Jason, Professor Jay, whatever you want to call me, just call me. You know what I mean? Just call. So, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Jason, uh, seasoned black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, seasoned Judo black belt, amazing martial artist, dad. Oh, shoot. Hold on. My background messed up. Let me fix that shoot. Uh, oh, listen, man. We laughed. Go with it. Go with it. <laughs> uh, Go with it. Man. Amazing dad. Every, uh, everything about Jason is... Uh, sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, oh. Is bomb diggity. Um, first thing I wanted to ask you about, we haven't seen each other in a while. How have yeah. the last two years been for you, family, everybody? Well, um, before we even get into that, first of all, thank you for having me come on your Grinding Your Gear show here. It's uh, has. been a minute. I, I see you're plugging away doing the episode, so congrats on that. Congrats on uh, the Delph Bod shirts. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the ever-expanding family. Yeah, um, sure. A lot of people don't know this, but we were both alumni of the University of Windsor. Yes, we were. Uh, we, we came up together in jiu-jitsu. Uh, I, I watched you as you matured from... Uh, you know, an athlete to jujitsu practitioner, jujitsu com- competitor, and then transitioned to MMA amateur, then into professional. So, man, it's it's been a great journey watching you kind of hit all your goals, right? You've always been determined, and so it's an honor to like be part of the journey that you know thank saw you from your beginnings into where you are now. Um, thank you, thank you, thank get, you. Getting that out of the way, um, <laughs> things things have been interesting with covid right um yeah. i started my studio that's what i was about back, to ask you yeah back in 2018 um obviously i was still doing te- i was still doing day classes at omar's at uh salvosa salvosa headquarters and so uh it was a good start you know i was getting yeah. kids coming in i'm in durham area so you know i was getting a lot of uh kids first time kids in martial arts um a few less adults a lot more kids yeah um so program is starting to get rolling right and pretty much like 2020 covid put the brakes on it right right it crashed um so there was a period of time i was actually doing some zoom classes and some of the families tried to continue but that didn't go so well. The Zoom was not working for a lot of the kids. It's hard to maintain engagement, especially. Uh, and let's be honest. I did a few uh, with with Professor. Mm-hmm. Not, and this is not a knock-on Professor, but it's, it's not yeah. it's not jiu-jitsu. It's not, no. it's not martial arts. It's not jiu-jitsu. Um, from someone who's still, like, I have clients online that I teach in, you know, Ottawa and different stuff, mm-hmm. different places in Canada and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's, I can teach fitness over Zoom. Yes. I can't yes. 
you can't teach martial arts over Zoom. Yes. You can give instructions, but let's be, as two martial arts practitioners, let's be freaking honest. Zoom, yeah. Zoom is not a place where you learn martial arts. It's as simple as that. No. It's, it's a place where you can share ideas, but it's not a place where you can develop physical skill in, in that kind of endeavor. Yeah. Um, and also, too, you know, for kids, it's just not interactive enough, right? No. Like, um, kids want to feel like they're in the room with other kids having fun playing. Yeah. They don't want to be taught from their living room, especially when they were getting that from school already. So a lot of the kids I was teaching, they were doing Zoom classes for regular day school. So this is just another Zoom class. You like, log off and log back on another one. But right. Kind of, yeah. And um, uh, I mean, you have little kids and I have little kids. And let's be yeah. honest, when we do, when you go and you see uh, jujitsu classes, martial arts classes, what, let's be honest, the kids are looking forward to most is probably playing the games at the end of class. 100%. Right? 100%. They go, they'll show up, they'll learn. Obviously, they're you know they're limited with how much they can retain. But what they're yes. really looking forward to is oh, when Sensei says class is over, we're gonna play handball. That's right. what excites them. That's what like when mom and dad say it's time to go to jujitsu or Muay Thai or boxing. Right. That's what excites them. So I mean, they yes. can't do that over Zoom, right? No, no. And then it's, and with COVID, there was so much limits to what you could do with the kids. Yeah. Like I, I even got down to doing the in when we were actually in person. The individual boxes, six feet apart, yeah. you know, limit how many kids could be in the class. Um, the whole thing to me was just terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I want to be frank. Yeah. Um, it was, I felt bad that I could not give the kids the fullness of the martial art that I've grown to love. Yeah. Right. What's jujitsu without rolling? There's nothing. You know? And, and I mean, it, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've talked to like Professor Bruckman, and mm -hmm. that was one of his driving forces to I wouldn't say stop operations, but because to because in the purest sense of art, like in any art, whether it be yeah. whether it be drawing, whether it be painting, whether it be martial art, whether it be film production, whatever, you always have to engage in the purest sense of the art, and for martial arts, it's combat it's physical yes. touching and yes. you can't like you can shadow box as much as you want but that don't mean you can throw a jab <laughs> you know what i mean so that that style of training that the the kids were involved with and some adults for that matter yeah it, i'd say of, of 100 it's about 10 percent translatable yes yes and you know I, I my heart broke when um Professor Brookman said he was going to, at least at the time I don't know if it was temporary I don't know if it's temporary thing but close that part of his business down I know he does other things as well, it my heart broke because I was like you know out here in Durham like he was the man like yeah. he had a very well established school program, um lots of his guys have gone on to teach you know he's brought up a lot of black belts yeah so. We lost someone special out here in Durham in we terms lost, of his presence. We lost somebody special in Canada. In yes. And, yes. And to, to expand on what you said, when he announced his school closing, 
that's when I knew shit was going to be real. That's when I knew oh, yeah. that, like, at first we had the lockdowns and, you know, the first, you know, four or five months, everyone was kind of chilling. Like, I wasn't chilling business-wise, but I was kind of chilling with, you know, pursuing certain things. and Yeah, training. and You know, I was still training. Like, we were doing secret training, but I wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. like, I wasn't trying to push, you know, push myself to, to like, mm-hmm. like normal. But then when he announced that he was closing, I was like, okay, this is not something that's going to end anytime soon. No. You know, we can talk about that because basically in how I foresee things going, this is not ending anytime soon. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I have so many mixed feelings about the destructive nature of the COVID, but more so about the destructive destructive ideas that COVID's put into the minds of we who kind of are just walking around. But just to be completely frank and transparent, um, I I vaccinated. I got vaccinated. Right? Yeah. But prior to prior to the vaccination being available, when I first heard about it, I was like, this is nonsense. Like Yeah. You know, the mathematic the math didn't add up to me as to why I would need to get vaccinated. Until somebody very close to me was very sick and actually called me from the hospital. And this is someone who I knew to be healthy, and they were literally gasping for air. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm a parent. You know, I gotta, I gotta think not just about me, but me struggling through this disease. If my wife and I get sick, no one's coming to watch my kids because oh. nobody wants to come and get yeah. COVID, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and then a neighbor. I didn't know this neighbor well, but two doors down, a neighbor passed away. And the same, the situation happened to them was the neighbor, the father passed away. The mother had COVID. She had a collapsed lung. The hospital was called. They came to get her, but there was no one there to get her kids. Mm, Yeah. And so she was like, she refused to go to the hospital because she didn't want to leave her kids at home. She had some young, I guess, mixed age. And Members of her family were probably like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to get COVID. Like, I don't, I don't, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get sick. There was no, yeah, there was no vaccine. Yeah. So it wasn't like you can come in and be like, oh, no, I'm vaccinated, so I'm taking less risk. It was like, no, no, no. The dad already died. So you're already scared. Like, okay, this thing killed somebody in the household. And so I understand that this is not something that's a fake thing. Like, I don't think COVID's fake. Oh, no, no I, I've had it. I, I understand that it's absolutely. There you go. You know what I mean, uh, and uh, I share the same. Like, I think when people talk about this, they they go on. Like, I think uh, uh, Chris Bonfoco said it the best. The minute you don't agree with the narrative, you're labeled as anti, anti this, anti right, anti right, that, anti that, utter foolishness, utter, utter, foolishness. utter foolishness. And right. like, I'm not anti COVID. I've had, no. it. I've, yeah. I've, I'm, I've, I'm immune. I've got mm-hmm. I've I've encountered this, this this disease. I understand that it can be more serious in you know people than it was with like. And I would classify our case as moderate. I don't think it was mild at all. You know, we had some symptoms. There was like two days where I was like, eh, maybe I should have taken this shit more seriously. And then you know, yeah. and, then, and I was you know, but I also did the right things when I knew that we got it. I put in. Mm-hmm. Right, vitamins. I we mm-hmm. me and my wife were taking all the natural vitamins that God has mm-hmm. provided this earth that cures this kind of shit. 
And mm. within, you know, I think it was took us four days to shake it, right? But for mm. two days, we felt like crap, right? Yeah. And then after that, we got better and better and better. So I, I'm very aware and I'm understanding of, you know, people who have family members that did die. Yeah. People who, like, because I've been there, I've had it. It could have easily gone the other way. I have a friend yes. who, professional mixed martial artist, super healthy, probably more well-trained than everybody we know. Um, she got it and it tore her down. Not because mm -hmm. she was unhealthy, mm -hmm. but because she beats herself up so much, her immune system is already broken. So when this thing yes. She was in the hospital for a few days and whatever. Yeah. Now you would when I I'm not gonna name her by name because I don't think she wants to that story to be out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, now that that's over, you would think that somebody who got hit by that would be all you know pro this you know take this. Mm -hmm. No, she's mm -hmm. like whatever. No, God cured me. I was out. Mm -hmm. I encountered mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want people to live their life like normal. And what is percent? And but it's hard to find that now, and maybe it is there, but it's being um, you know sheltered, silenced. Like I don't know if you well, saw. It. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say to you that the person, the reason why I got COVID was a friend of mine got sick. That person got sick, recovered, and he hasn't gotten vaccinated. Yeah. Right. So he his position is much like yours. Like, hey, I dealt with it. It was bad. I'm good moving forward with it. I know what to expect from it now on from now on. And I think that the dangerous part of how we're dealing with COVID and how we're talking about it is we're making it very much like a us versus them. Yes. Uh, vaccinated versus vaccinated unvaccinated. Um you want to wear a mask, you don't want to wear a mask. That means something. You know? Yeah. It means more than just you expressing your personal choice. No. By you expressing your choice, you want to kill me and my family. It, it becomes so weird. Like well, People abandon all sense of just personal freedom and, and respecting people's choices. They've made everything into like, like a life or death. Your choices are going to kill me and people I care about. It's kind of like, guys... Before COVID, there was lots of other things out there that could kill you. Yeah, yeah. Right? There was, there was lots of things yeah. that were communicable that could kill you. Hell, driving is still more dangerous than COVID. Hello, hello. More people die still. Yeah. Um, and then you know when you look when you look at how our government's reaction to it and the things that they did and the limbo that they left people in, like business owners like yourself, like like a Justin, like myself, like. They were they were left in the limbo, even like Chris and Blaine, like left in limbo to figure out what the next steps are when they're not being given any clear direction about what's down the pipeline. So I got to like float my business for an indefinite period of time, yeah. hoping I can operate too. Right. Yeah. And then I want to circle back to something you were just saying, because I wanted to ask your opinion on something. Um, yeah were the the vax and the unvax thing and um so what when i gather from talking to people because i i may remain neutral i pretty yeah. much i don't give a shit i i mm. don't care if someone is super pro this i don't care yeah. if someone's anti this you're entitled mm. to how the hell you want to feel 
That's yeah. It, like if it doesn't bother my day to day life, I don't care. I respect everybody's opinion to do whatever. Mm-hmm. What bothers me is that this there's a growing like trend of thought in mm-hmm. society right now that um, I'm trying to like I'll use the children's vaccine vaccination thing as a um, an example. Now neither mm-hmm. of my children are eligible for yeah. vaccine, right? And yeah. uh, even if they were. I'm more along the line, me and my wife made the decision, we want to wait. Because when we look at statistics, the Mm -hmm. cons outweigh the pro. Yes. Based on statistics, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get into all the the chemicals, whatever. Straight up, you know, they have a 0.002% then there's a 0.003% side effect. So when I'm, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but why would I take a 0.1% chance of anything? Now, the argument right. has been put out there that by me not doing something or by mm-hmm. my kid not doing something, and this could just be anybody and just generalizing, I am putting other people at risk. And I should put the community ahead of the safety of myself. Right, and I and it blows my mind that you know because like God, like we know it's rare. Like I'm not saying people are dropping dead from vaccines and getting. Mm-hmm. We know that things are rare, right? Mm-hmm. But if that rare event did occur to you, because you were doing it for the greater good of society, who the fuck's gonna take care of you? Who the hell's nobody? Nobody. 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 And what people fail to realize is that. The companies that are producing these things are mm-hmm. exempt from any mm-hmm. legal repercussions. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that makes me uncomfortable. You know, yes. putting my child in that position too, especially, you know, let alone myself, right? Right. But I, it's I, for the greater good, right? So you're right. Um, you've made a, an educated decision that you would make. COVID aside, as a parent, you make those decisions all the time, right? Where am I going to go with my kids? What school am I sending them to? If I send them there, they can come in contact something they're allergic to. That could hurt them. You know, like you're making these choices as a parent all the time. You've educated yourself. You and your wife are intelligent enough. You love your kids enough that you can make that choice, right? I'm all for that. I'm all for people making their personal choices and the rest of us in society having to live with it. Yeah. That that's the whole point. The whole point is we can't control the people. We're just hoping that we're agreeing to live together and that your choices don't affect me that badly. Um with and I want to be careful because I'm obviously I'm gonna generalize because I don't know everybody. Yeah. It seems to me the people who are most worried about COVID now and the most vocal about other people having to do what they did, be vaccinated, are the people who are vaccinated. Most people who I know who are not vaccinated yeah. are not worried about COVID. No, no. The people who are most worried about COVID and spreading it and making everything, you're doing this, and you're, people who have the most to say are people who are vaccinated. I would think... That you would feel safe. You, you would feel safer. Yeah. Once you get vaccinated, you're moving out with your life. You're like, yeah. I've done everything I can do. It's kind of like, you know, you, you buy your car, the seatbelt's in your car, right? You're being told, hey, wear your seatbelt. It protects you from 
severe the severe repercussions of an accident. You buckle up, you drive, you move on. Yes, you know there's drunk drivers out there. Yes, you know there's distracted drivers out there. Yes, you know there are people who maybe you know high or took medication to make them sleepy. You know all these things when you get on the road. Yeah. Nobody who's driving is there worried about is that a drunk driver? Is that like you're you're doing what you got to do? Yeah, you point take your precaution. Yeah, right. You put your seatbelt on. You get in your car. You look both ways. You look at your mirrors. You say, and you go. Yeah. To me, the vaccine is that you've taken every precaution that you could physically take to protect you against something that could happen, like any accident. It could. It could not. Yeah. And you move on with your life. What What's happening now? And it's a mix of things. I think, you know, there's business behind the news cycle and the fear, the fear cycles that happen with the news. There's a business behind that. And they have an agenda. When I say they, I mean all news. I don't mean left-leaning. All of them have an agenda to get you to to pay attention so they can sell you more things in the ad space. And COVID is a fear monger type thing. It produces enough fear to get you worried, to get you to watch more news, to get you to see what are statistics today. Well, how many people got COVID today? And man, and I was falling I, into that trap. I was falling into the trap. We all were. We all were. And in, in my last podcast, I did with um, Coach Gaytan. Now he does a lot of mindset training with a lot of professional athletes, and he said it the best that it wasn't a. And he's in the health industry, so and yeah. you know, it's not a health pandemic anymore. What this no. is, what we're what we're dealing with now is uh, a war on consciousness. Yes. Uh, our abilities to think and to make decisions and to just critically be able to analyze and and just use your thoughts and emotions to make decisions for yourself mm-hmm. is challenged. And it's, mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with COVID, has nothing to do with the vaccine, has nothing right. to do with um, governments. Well, it has plenty to do yeah. with governments, but yeah. it has everything to do with how can we now take a population and make them now rely on us for all of their information, all right. of their thoughts? How can we mm-hmm. tell them how to think, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the war on consciousness is. And I mean, I see it within my very, my, my own immediate family, um, mm-hmm. uh, the hysteria. Mm-hmm. I mean, this past week and a half alone is evidence alone of how media has challenged everybody's thought pattern because we, we have a new variant. Well, you know, of course, we have a new variant. Uh, sends the stock market down significantly. Uh, mm-hmm. People are talking about now, you know, travel restrictions on. But mm-hmm. there's no professor. There's no freaking data. There's no data that this has yep. any bearing on keeping the world running and functional. Mm-hmm. But and even the doctor from South Africa, where this is, she said, yep. there's no reason to panic. There's not right. data, right? Right. But. but when the media gets a hold of something that they know will cause another cycle, here we mm-hmm. go again. And you would mm-hmm. think after two years, you know, we think that humans were intelligent. I, I, I question <laughs> that narrative. No, we're not. We're not. And, 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 and sense is not common. That, no. that, that's, 
That's a lie. Sins are not common. So I, I think the precursor to this happened before COVID. We were pumped and primed over the last 10 years for this, yeah. right? Um, I think what lit a lot of our fuses, not uh, not everyone, but a lot of our fuses were, were lit during the Trump years of his presidency because I watched how agitated people got when it came to the news. Yeah. Because literally every day it was like, what crazy thing did this guy do today? What did Trump do today? Yeah. And, and then people who were for him were like, well, what crazy things are they going to say about Trump that he did and trying to demonize him? And so slowly people began to just separate into camps. And then when they, when you see the lying from this particular individual, yes, all politicians lie. Yeah. But like you saw some of the blatant lies and the fact that people had to cover for him. So now it made you like even question, okay, like this guy, this is you're president of the United States, you have access to so much information, right? You know like you could find out if there's really aliens. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can like you have everything at your disposal. Why is he lying? And so now you begin to question everything. You become really worried that what you're hearing is not the truth. Then, insert COVID. You know, this weird thing from a weird place started off being about bat soup. (laughs) Then it went from bat soup to a laboratory somewhere in China, Wuhan, a place that none of us have ever heard of, right? And supposedly there's a lab there that made this thing, and that thing now spread out to the whole world. You first heard about COVID, I want to say like fall, early winter of 2019. Yeah. I remember people were making jokes about it. Yeah, I heard about oh, it. Winter. Yeah, I heard about it winter 2019. I knew it was going to be an issue. I, I For some right. reason, I just had an instinct it would be an issue. And for me, I knew I was prepared. I didn't understand the gravity of it. When mm-hmm. here's when I was new, I was prepared for something to happen. Was when the government flew back the plane full of people from Wuhan, the Canadian mm-hmm. citizens that were in Wuhan, mm-hmm. and put them into the Trenton naval base. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what that when that happened. That is when I kind of knew stuff was up. And, um, I mean, the, the, the whole, uh, let's, let's be honest. It came from a lab. Uh, it came from a lab. Um, right. the fact that like, you know, Republican or Democrat, uh, conservative right. aside, cause both sides are guilty of so much shit. And yeah. even in Canada, even worse, yeah. um, I, I think Canada was primed and ready for this since. 2015 when Justin Trudeau took office um, mm-hmm. and like I don't care where anyone leans politically that doesn't mean everyone's entitled to their own political uh, beliefs like I publicly say I'm more conservative leaning individual mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I support everything conservative yes. uh, politicians and people do right mm-hmm. I just that is more along the line of where my family me and my wife well, your personal beliefs lie right yeah Canada was primed and ready from this from 2016. Once uh, Justin Trudeau took office and the shift in culture in Canada began to happen. Because um, Joe Rogan posted this a few days ago, like a little pie chart. It was like um, on the bottom right, you have 
good times. Mm. That's what we were in, right? Mm. Good times. It's just easy to do things. It's easy to make money. It's easy to get the things you want. Uh, yeah. You can, you know, you can move to America or Canada and become yeah. successful and immigrate. Mm. Times were good. But when, mm. when people fail to realize when times are good, that doesn't mean that all the things going on behind are good. What was, yes. what was happening, what was slowly happening when we have, and this is not a knock on liberals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't give a sh- I don't give it, like I, I'll say it again. It's not a knock on liberals, but when we have more left leaning governments, mm-hmm. certain things happen in terms of their progressive ideologies. And what mm-hmm. ended up happening in those good times is we began to see what we call like weak men, right? Mm-hmm. And, when I, I don't want people to say I'm like some, um, what's the right word? Like some asshole who's, you know. Misogynist. Misogynist. There you go. Those fancy words my, my dumbass doesn't know. But I'm not, ah! I'm, not being, <laughs> I'm not being a misogynist. But what, when I say weak man, it means um, things got too easy. We didn't have to work for things anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and this is myself included. Yeah. There were things that I took for granted. Mm-hmm that were always just there for me. And what ends up happening when that becomes, you know, 20, 30 years of that, you build a society that's incredibly vulnerable because you didn't have to do the hard things to get to a good place. Since I was a human being and born, you literally got in the car, you go to the grocery store and you get food, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that easy, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone needs to be a hunter, but, you know, understanding where food actually comes from will go a long way to appreciate that the value for the ability to just go there and pick something up. But we were so privileged for 20 plus years to not have to worry about things like that. Supply chains breaking down, lockdown, mm-hmm. lockdowns, not being able to work for people, people yeah. not being able to go to their job. So we ended up creating as a very weak society, weak men. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and that transition now is obviously the next step is authoritarian style government. And, mm-hmm. you know, the other part of that chart is, you know, good times and strong men. And, you know what I mean? To come. Yeah. Weak times. Obvi- unfortunately, we're still in that weak men part and we still have a long way to go. But uh, yeah. I think it's interesting. I, I saw his post about that and the, the idea that um, ba- like troubled times make strong men. Yeah. Good times make weak men. Right. And so, you know, it, th- this is a unique time. And I mean, as someone who's, I'm turning 45 this year. So I, I was born in the seventies, grew up in the eighties and nineties, and then came into my adulthood in the early two thousands to the mid two thousands. So I've watched like, all these transitions, right? Like when I was at university, I didn't have a personal computer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I I never I didn't have a cell phone until literally I was like I didn't have a cell phone until second year of university. Right. <laughs> and so a lot of the things that make that made life easier, I didn't grow up with them. Yeah. Um, even some of the degrees that are offered now, they weren't even like that was even an option. When I was in school, yeah, right, like the areas of study, the 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 careers, like right now, 
passion. Like you're doing a podcast slash vlog and slash, you know, live. Like people make a career out of that, right? Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't a, that wasn't a thing. Like An Instagram model is a thing, right? That's you a can, thing. You can and as stupid as a career as it is, to, in my high, all the power to you if you can make thousands of dollars posting pictures of your right. duck lips. Like, go ahead, right. girl. Like, I'm I'm all for it. Like, geez, right. that's a career, man. Right. And so I think that um we're in an interesting time. I really believe when we look back at the chain of events that led to right now we will see like there's a lot of stuff happening in the background and i think that um a lot of the changes are creating uh, a grumbling and uh, a pushback and the pushback is not something that's out in your face. The pushback is something that's under the surface. So people, like I said, if I push it back to Trump, when he was elected, people, some people were shocked. Like, how could this happen? Like, why would they want this guy? And I'm like, you got to understand, like, a lot of us in North American society are passive aggressive, yeah. right? Yeah. We've made an agreement to live with each other, but I don't like a lot of things people do, right? <laughs> yeah. And so... If given an opportunity to secretly f stuff up, yeah, I will do it. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Because it, that's a lot of us are passive aggressive, right? Um, and so I think that what what people when you push for change, right? Because you believe your change and your ideas are right, you, you cannot see. What you're pushing for change is doing to those who don't want to change. So it's blind. And I can say your push for change is blinding you, basically, to the right. Yeah, yeah. To the pushback that's going to come. Yes. Right. And so you know we're we're men of color, and so coming up, we face different difficulties, right? Like different challenges, right? Some in one area more than others, and so you know we. We ideally want things just to be fair across the board, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there are those who didn't see a problem with how things were when it was unfair for us. Yeah. And so those people are like, ah, oh, leave it the way it is. I'm good with that. They are the people who are going to push back. Yeah. And so it's going to be interesting to see when we're 10 years from now, we, when they open up the books, and all the politicians that were alive today are dead and and it doesn't matter what they did. Yeah. When you see what people were really doing back then, back in now, we're going to be like, oh, these guys. Yeah, these serious. guys are all lying. <laughs> yeah. All these guys were lying. All these guys were playing games. It was like it was like a bunch of professional wrestlers. Like It was like a WWE yeah. with people's lives. A hundred percent. And uh, what is shocking to me is that we've within the matter of what 18 to 20 months mm -hmm. lost um the human compassion uh yes for each other um before all of this happened and and i'm speaking for me other people are different but over this period of time i've actually gained more human compassion for other people mm -hmm. Um, and the reason that, and this is where we're coming back to the business part. And the reason I gained more compassion is because 
as a small business owner myself in the in an industry that got hammered, hammered by yeah. COVID, I was tremendously lucky that I had a model that was uh, immune to this, right? Yeah. I had a model of immune to, I didn't have a physical location. Yep. Um, so my, with, it comes with more work and more trouble with travel, et cetera, et cetera. But I wasn't victim to shutdowns and lockdowns, right? Yes. But a yes. lot of my colleagues in the industry, yourself included, were, right? Yeah. And that is something that I never in my lifetime thought I would have to witness is right. strong men, strong businessmen and women who mm -hmm. grind daily. I visit their mm -hmm. businesses constantly, mm -hmm. all of a sudden brought to their knees to the point mm -hmm. where, you know, they're, they're, they're telling me, Ashton, I don't know how long more I can do this. So I don't know how, yeah. right? And, you know, every, a lot of people like to think that the government subsidies were you know great no they weren't great what the government subsidies did what they really did let's be honest is really they just exposed weak businesses and those ones still shut down right right I, what, what's happening right now is you know the subsidies have ended mm -hmm. and now the party's over the what mm -hmm. was keeping some of these places alive and running is not going to keep them anymore it exposed no. Right, and I'm not no. saying that those people deserved to lose their business. No, no, it's not about deserve. Nobody deserved to lose their business. Nobody. It. That's what the subsidies. They held up the weak businesses. Now the mm -hmm. strong business people survived. Mm -hmm. the strong business people are the ones that wanted to pursue and prevail, survive. But mm -hmm. what it did for me was it just it showed me that you know everybody is going through something. Like I knew yeah. that before, but now I, it was more evident to me because before, you know, I didn't think about it. I'm like, hey, look at this person. They have a shop. They have a restaurant. They must be doing good in life. Yeah. And now I'm looking at things a lot differently because now I'm thinking back to my past thought pattern. That person might have had a restaurant, but it might not have been doing well. Or their business partner might have been sick or bailed out on them. And yep. now that all of this has happened, I've sort of gained more of an appreciation for, you know, people who don't necessarily work for a business. They work for mm -hmm. themselves. And it yeah. and it and that's what pushed me to, you know, these last two years I've been working so hard to build certain things because mm -hmm. I know that now that I've seen this happen, none of this is guaranteed. At mm -hmm. any point in time, any passion that you have can be wiped away, clean slate. So I think what people need to be take away from this, if you could take away anything from the last two years, is that one, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Your mom and dad yep. taught you that when you were a kid. Yep. Um, don't put all your eggs in one basket because I think what we've seen now is from business owners who, you know, they were solely focused on operating their one and only business. You need to have separate revenue streams because at any yep. single time, at any moment, mm -hmm. you know, I think what we've learned is the government can pretty much take take it away, right? With, yes. With yes. simple simple legislation, simple say shutdown, they can take it away. So in order to be keep, keep your family fed, you need to – you know, branch off, whether it be investing, whether it be yeah. another business. Diversify, diversify. Diversify yourself. And I think, you know, the best is yet to come. Like, 
when it all is said and done, when it all when all of this is done, I'm gonna my timeline is another three years for this crap. Mm. But mm. when it's all done, I think what we're gonna see is a a, a slew of amazing businesses and amazing entrepreneurs and amazing visionaries come out because mm -hmm. they maybe were directed in one field or one mm -hmm. vision and because of covid they were able to you know branch out to different parts and like that's yep. in every every single industry like movies had to do it yeah fitness had to do it uh mm -hmm. you know restaurants had to do it too so i think when it's all said and done when we can live life like normal when you know things are dropped you're going to see really positive things coming out of the human race, but I don't know. That's a while away stuff. Well, listen, I, I think what you're saying is, is, is true. If you look at what's happened in the last 18 months, I mean, if you, if you want to like illustrate it, I guess in my mind, I like look at it like the comet that killed the dinosaurs, right? Yeah. And so here you had these robust, large creatures who ruled the earth, right? Yeah. And out of nowhere, this comet comes, hits oh, them. Smash it. There's a lot of robust, large, you know, meaty businesses that were operating on a certain understanding, on a certain paradigm. Yeah. And then comes COVID and literally just wipes them out. Yeah. And the only people that are left from COVID after are the ones who were able to adapt and diversify. Yeah. Right? So you mentioned um, you run a brick and mortar business, right? One thing I noticed right away is a lot of businesses were getting away with not having an online presence. Yeah. They had no social media presence, but whatever they had was very lame. They had no real way to keep in contact with their customer outside of the customer coming in to see them. Yeah. Right? COVID made you have to do that. Connect. You you had to be connecting socially. Right? COVID also too opened the the bar was lowered for what people expected for things like like uh, food like restaurants so during this covid time all these little mom and pop cook the food make the thing at homes popped up and it was like oh i can deliver it to you oh um i'm gonna be here pop-up shop at this one particular place for this set of period of time come get whatever it is you want from me right and people were flooding it. They're like, oh, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm home. I'm working from home. I want to try something different. Yeah, like, now that I'm home, I want to go to a food truck. You know, yeah. like, and so all these different leaner, more adaptable businesses are springing up or have sprung up. Innovation. And, it's innovation. It's the, Innovation. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a very good right? thing. And I don't right. see the full effects of it till it's over. Um, mm. uh, but, like, I mean... One of our my friends from Windsor, he has a I did a, I did a podcast with him, uh, Bobby Tran. He has his uh, really successful gym out in Windsor, and mm -hmm. and he said virtual training wasn't a big part of his uh, business before, but now that this is over, thirty percent of his revenue is now through virtual means, not necessarily classes, but yes, online coaching to right, right, and. So, you know, so for someone like him who is what I would consider a strong business person, a strong leader in his in his certain community, uh, that is another way for him to impact the world. Yes, yes, innovation, right? And um, right, we're going to see a lot of that in a lot of different industries. But I think that mm -hmm. while things are still like 
the hysteria is still towards you know the you know the jab and the variants and all that kind of stuff we're not going to be able to see those amazing innovations that people have created yet but mm -hmm. in time, i think you know when you know when this becomes history when mm -hmm. what we're living in right now is in the history book those innovations and those things that came out of this will definitely be at the forefront you know what i mean yeah i agree and i think like even things like education like i know that during covid i kind of took it upon myself i, I made a promise to myself that hey when this is all done because i thought it was going to be like six months maybe max a year yeah right uh, so when this is all done i'm going to come out of this more skilled in something that I was before. Yeah. So I took the opportunity to do like a lot of online classes through um, George Brown College. I, I, I'm, I'm a hobbyist illustrator. So I was taking these illustration classes. And, you know, after going through that whole thing, it's like, oh, you know what? Like, why would I ever, as an adult, having gone to university and did the whole sitting class thing, right? Yeah. Why would I ever go back to doing that when I got, a good experience doing stuff online. Oh, so the nature of education is going to change. Like the way in which people consume and get their education is going to change. Ideally, education should now become more affordable because about half the people won't mind learning off their iPad. No, and and here this is an even this is an even bigger top because as two yeah. people who have been through the university system. Yeah. Um, I, I say this and I don't say it to undervalue my education, but mm -hmm. I wish somebody had talked to me more when I was 18 and I probably wouldn't have gone to school. And I, and I don't say that, right. I don't say that, that I'm not, I, I value my degree. And I'm yeah. glad yeah. I had that experience those four years. But when I really sit back, like as a 30-year-old with two kids, when I really sit back and I look at those ex that, that time, mm -hmm. I believe it would have been better suited pursuing my actual goals. But nobody actually sat down with me and asked me right. what my actual goals were. And I mm -hmm. think now that we have – I mean podcasting is a huge form of education. Uh, oh, yeah. The – amount of amazing content that is out there from incredibly mm -hmm. intelligent people like i love uh jordan peterson and yep. the the people that he it's it's that's free like that just listening to like i listened to his podcast with him and maxine bernier and there was something that mm -hmm. came out of that podcast for, for non-political it was there was something that came out of that podcast that i would have never known unless you had an open forum discussion and it yeah. and it was a lot. It was it was to do with the uh, the natives and the Indian Act. The Indian Act in Canada, mm -hmm. basically, uh, and he and he was expressing to Jordan as one of his platform ideas was that he wanted to abolish the Indian Act and replace it yes. with some, with something better. Mm -hmm. They would consult all the you know the different yeah yeah uh, natives and, and figure it out. And I didn't know that. One of the limiting factors of why indigenous people in Canada can't break through that barrier and, and you know, gain assets is because they can actually never own physical land because of the mm -hmm. Indian Act. It's owned mm -hmm. by the reserve. You can right. build property. You can 
renovate your the house. You can do whatever to bring the value of it up, but you will never own it. Right. Of the act. So right. that I did. I've never known that, and the only way I knew that was by listening to a podcast. And that opened my eyes up to like, okay, this is one of the issues we should actually be talking about. Right. Instead of, you know, dipshit fucking skipping out on the freaking, you know, first Inuit day he created and going mm. swimming on the beach, right? Instead of talking about him screwing up, we should be talking about, you know, there's still communities that don't have clean drinking water. How, how retarded mm. is that? We call a $500 million election, but people are still drinking dirty water in a right. country we call a 500 million dollar election but people still can't own land legally in a first world country those are yeah. important issues that need to be talked about but they can't be talked about in institutional situations and in institutional so they can't be talked about in school because mm-hmm. narratives in school there's funding in school there's things that happen in these institutions that me and you have attended that are beyond, you know, learning. It's about there's money that goes with it. And I think mm-hmm. what like what you've just said with the digital age and people being able to now access information seamlessly, mm-hmm. what you're going to see is you can pick and choose your education without actually having to pay for it. Yes. And that yes. that that's it's it, that's as scary to governments as blockchain technology and crypto. <laughs> that's why, yeah, right? The the and, and 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 it's also scary because what it will create will be free thinking. So so beyond the free, because this they're gonna find a way to make you pay for it. But yeah. what I, what I, what I would say is this: so I I found Jordan Peterson. By listening to podcasts, I found Joe. People would always tell me about Joe Rogan for years. I I just never was listening, yeah. but I started I started listening a couple of years ago, and and he introduced you to different thinkers. Yeah. So as long as you're listening to people who are introducing you to not just people that think the way you think, but people that think differently, and that's why I like about Joe Rogan because he brings anybody on his show. Anybody on, yeah, yeah, right. And so you're gonna get. Your your mind is going to get tickled by some of the things that people he brings on are going to say, and then you can go research it on your own. Exactly. Right. I think the valuable thing for me in university, like you, um, I bought into the idea that I'm going to this place to make me more marketable in the market. Yeah. Right. So yeah. to give me marketable skills, so when I go into the workforce, I will be in a better position. That's ideally what was taught to me as a kid, and then that's why I went. Um, That's not necessarily the truth about university. Most people who told us about university and told us to go there, our our loved ones, people who cared about us, they had never been. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't understand what was actually at university. University has always been designed as a place of research and a place to teach people how to think. How you how that translate to you in the marketplace is up to you. Yeah. But because you're so young, you can't make those mature decisions about how you're going to prepare yourself for the marketplace after going through four years of school where you study theories and like some of the most some the things we studied in school have like no 
real world application, except in academic circles. Exactly. And, and um, here's one of the things that bugged me the most. You go through four years, and in America, it's worse because the cost of education is way. Oh, bad. Um, but you, like let's take Canada for example. You go through four years of school, you come out, you're finished, right? You're done. You you mm -hmm. this degree, this this thing that's supposed mm -hmm. to make your life transcendently better, but you've mm -hmm. immediately inherited forty thousand dollars worth of debt. And in America, yeah. it's 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 higher. Now, if you decide to do a master's, etc. Yeah. So let's just say you've done a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. You've done a bachelor's degree in, uh, you know. I'll take my 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 education. I did it in kinesiology, so I'm yes. now forty thousand dollars in debt, and I have mm -hmm. a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. Mm -hmm. I have literally, excuse my language, I've literally just fucked myself because I have mm -hmm. no understanding of how to pay forty thousand dollars back. Mm -hmm. Right? Every educational model, in my opinion, should contain basic investment in economics. That is one of the most crucial things, and I think institutions do it on purpose where they, you know, forego that part of education because it's almost like we want to handicap these people. We want to put them into the working class and get them to go to, to you know, well, you have to work a nine to five to pay off that student loan. Well, yeah. well if I was taught, you know, I should invest my money now. I should build assets while I'm in university so that mm -hmm. when I come out, I can pay that thing off in two years, mm -hmm. you know, sell some of my assets, sell some of whatever. Uh, then I don't have to worry about that. But now what you're seeing is people are coming out of school and they're working till like 40, 50, yeah. and then paying off their loan. And now you're expecting them to take on a mortgage and buy a house when they don't have the simple fundamental knowledge of how economics work. You know what I mean? So the question, let me let me push back on you. The question you got to ask is: Was university ever meant to teach you those skills, or was that meant to be taught to you by your community? Mm, that's a good. So, yeah, that's a, it's a valid. The, the reason why the reason why I ask this is because, like you said, like when you go through school, you get um, you get an undergraduate understanding of a theory. So we we meet our professors who are all researchers. Some of them are good teachers. Most of them are not. Yeah. Right? Most of them are just not good teachers. Oh, they, they, right, yeah. they have a, a specialization. They introduce us to all these grand ideas. And their grand ideas work in a theoretical world. Right? Yeah. And we leave university without any real-world application. Yeah. I think, personally, every university should have connected to a college where you do your four years or your three years, and right away you get a one-year college skill development program that then prepares you to work in the workforce. Because nobody really understands what their degree translates to. Like in general, you do like, oh, if I take kinesiology, I can become a gym teacher. Yeah. Right. I can go into the fitness industry. I can go into more research on kinesiology and maybe end up working for a sports team. Yeah. And become a physiotherapist or a massage therapist. Like, you know the general broad, right? Yeah. But I bet you the highest paid people with kinesiology degrees are doing social media stuff, are doing oh, videos. They're also managing sports teams, right? That's managing sports teams yeah. and doing those skills that are not necessarily kinesiology-based, 
They're more creative things. Like they're more like, are you able to think creatively? Are you able to connect with people? Are you able to tell stories? Those soft skills that university is not necessarily there to give you. Yeah, people skills. Right. And so I, I think that um now that we're in this cold this this post ish COVID time, I think that education will have to become different. Because if I could get educated to an undergraduate level online, yeah, then really what I'm going to school for is to connect me to people. Yes. And then those connections open up opportunities to work, open up opportunities to do internships. Open up because I think there's value in things like working, volunteering, and doing those things to get the experience you need to go to that next level. Now, Sorry, what you, say that again. Sorry. <laughs> now, what what do you think about um with the educational institutions? Obviously, in America and in Canada, they're they're uh, corrupt is the wrong word, but um mm-hmm. they're they're quite. Politics, yeah. politics has uh, penetrated the education yeah. system. Now, like I like I mentioned before, I have my 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 right leaning views that are based on values. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think we can both agree that it's quite evident in the educational system. Uh, mm-hmm. There is more of uh, I get woke is the wrong word, but there's more uh, the the leaders of the educational system are more on progressive progressive. That's the right word. Right. And yeah. instead of education being somewhere where people come together and share ideas, debate ideas, and then take their, like no one's right or wrong. You take your ideas and you go and create something beautiful according mm-hmm. to your vision and go on with your life. Whereas mm-hmm. now I view education, and this is what scares me for my young kids coming up. The educational system is it's our way. And if mm-hmm. you think differently, we're mm-hmm. either going to change the way you think or we're going to push you out. Mm-hmm. What do you think about um, that that system that's kind of so, um, a mix? So obviously I have not been to university in over 20 years. Yeah. But I, I obviously I, I'm in contact with people who I meet people in my workforce who are just coming out of recently coming out of university. I think the problem is this. So, so education is an industry. Yeah. And so they're in the business of getting you to value business enough to pay lots of money for it. Yes. And so when we talk about progressive ideas, right, we have to understand that. The people who are now teaching students are people that were brought up by people who are very progressive in their understanding. Yeah. Right. And so you, you go study university, you go, you do your undergrad, then you do your master's and then you do your PhD. Really what you do is you, you make your focus into this razor point idea and you begin to say, that's the way the world works. Yeah. And this small theory you have is how you used to explain everything. Yeah. And then you maybe become a grad assistant or maybe your occasional professor or instructor. You get introduced to people and they're like, okay, teach these kids. So what are you going to teach them? You're going to bang into them that your idea is correct. Yes. Yeah. Right? And so we take what, – what the, what the bad thing is is we take these 
academic um, theoretical ideas introduced to people, and then those people drag those ideas into the regular world and try to make them apply. Yeah. Okay. I get so it. I use the example. You know, years ago I was introduced to the idea of, of white privilege. Yeah. Right. So you get exposed to this idea, and so you first hear it, and you're thinking, "Yeah, that sounds right." Yeah. White people have an invisible backpack that they take with them through life and it gets them great free stuff. And if you're not white, you don't have it. Yeah. Uh, under the premise of it sounds, it sounds right because, you know, as a person of color, I experience certain barriers that I don't see white people experiencing. So yeah. there must be something special to their whiteness. So there must be something they're getting that I'm not getting. So that's an idea that's introduced in academic circles. It spreads out, and now it's part of our regular speech. You can hear yeah. white privilege all the time. Yeah, but you know, white people I, are like, I have a huge problem with that statement because I, I, and I, I'm literally married to a white girl, <laughs> right? And right. So, and as, as a person of color, right, mm -hmm. I under I understand people's um, uh, struggles, like people, yes, color struggles. I understand them. But in my life, in my mm -hmm. life as a man of a different color than that's not white, I have mm -hmm. chosen, and this is my choice. Yeah. Yes, I've, yes, I've experienced racism. 100%. Yeah. I've experienced yeah. racism with police. I've experienced racism with people mm -hmm. calling me, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. I have chosen in my life, and this is how I overcome it, to simply ignore it, overcome mm -hmm. it, and show, mm -hmm. like, I don't need to verbally tell you I'm going to be, I'm going to overcome these things. I'm going to just do it. And look, mm -hmm. and it's worked, right? Now, mm -hmm. not everybody has the ability to 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 deal with those situations like that. They everyone deals with things on their own. But yeah. this the the idea that because someone's skin color is white, they have it easier. And mm -hmm. I I'm literally entrenched in white fucking culture. I'm I live with white people. I mm. my my in laws. I I know. Yeah. Yeah, it couldn't be the most like there are some valid examples, but it like it's such a broad generalization yes. of yes. of of color, and it, it, to me, it's it's so shocking that we've come this far that we have to do that kind of thing. And right, I can tell you why I think it happens. Yeah, tell me. When, huh? you, when when you when you drag those ideas into the day to day life of people, right? There are theoretical approaches. If somebody has researched this and they built a whole framework and idea around it, but when they bring it to everyone else, right, it obviously does not apply to everybody because there are white people who experienced tremendous poverty. They had to run, like some people had to leave certain countries. They were white people well, were slaves too, man. They're right. <laughs> they, they were. But they had to leave they had to leave poverty in other parts of the world and hardship and yeah. oppression and come to North America and couldn't speak the language and they were like, you know, mistreated. And so, and so when you come to them, because they present white, because they are of a certain skin tone, right. Um, of a certain texture of hair. So they present that way. When you say to them, Oh, you have privilege. They didn't see that in their life. Now, what really should happen is that we should have conversations with each other. Yes. To really hash out some of these ideas and understandings. But that is, that's not what happens, no, right? No, no, no. What ends up happening is this idea is introduced, 
at your workplace. They send you to all this training about this, yeah. right? And the workplace is like, no, we have a, a, a anti-racism, equitable principle at this workplace. You have to, so everyone has to take the training. Everyone has to do this. Everyone has to, you have to start talking this way. You have to start using this, start referring to the clients this way, start referring to the customers this way. And so you're like, okay, if I don't do this right, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. I don't agree with this thing. Like, I don't understand it fully and I don't agree with it. That's not been my experience. But if I speak out, they're going to say I'm racist yeah. because I don't agree with something. Right? Whereas when you're in university, at least when I was coming up, if someone said something like, you have right privilege, they'd be like, define that, defend that, yeah. give me examples. What are your arguments? They would, they come right back. At you. Oh yeah, they have to defend it. You have to defend your points, right? And right, and come like here's here's an there's there's a man at church, right? He's a white he's a white guy. One of the most, um, one of the greatest people, biggest hearts on the planet. He's always yeah. serving any event. He's the first one there. He's sweating, getting everything, making sure that everything is done. Per, couldn't be a more stand up guy, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now he works for a major media company in Canada. Fuck it, I'll say it. Yeah. Bell. Works for Bell. Yeah. He has been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. He has been applying for a certain promotion for a very mm-hmm. long time. He is mm-hmm. more than qualified to get it. Mm-hmm. Now, the managers told him, and this was right before COVID, when these mm-hmm. progressive ideologies were like yeah. really, really forefront. Mm-hmm. He applied for, this is like his fifth time applying. He's like, the manager's like, you are the right man for the job. You are the most qualified for the job. I'm so sorry to tell you this. We can't give it to you because of the rules that they have set out. We have to hire a person of color, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, right, as a person of actual color, I mm-hmm. think that is bullshit because we're mm-hmm. in my view, I don't care if you're orange, yellow, black, brown, white, mm-hmm. whatever the hell you could. If I have a job, I want the most qualified person to do that job, regardless of color. Because I don't mm-hmm. like, I understand people have different hardships getting there, right? Mm-hmm. But why would I want somebody who is not the right fit just mm-hmm. because of the color of their skin mm-hmm. when I have somebody who worked incredibly hard to get to that position mm-hmm. because of the color of his skin? He mm-hmm. now is not entitled to do that. I have a mm-hmm. strong, like, it annoys me. Like, mm-hmm. I understand diversity and we want to have big, nice, you know, melting pot of all different kind of people at workplace. But, you know, mm-hmm. as a business owner, when I hire, I'm not looking for color. I don't give a mm-hmm. damn what color you are. If I'm hiring a jiu-jitsu instructor, I want the best damn instructor, period. I don't care if you're the best athlete. I don't care mm-hmm. if you're white, black, orange, whatever. I want the mm-hmm. best instructor, period. If mm-hmm. I happen to get a diverse workplace because of it, so be it. Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. don't, well, you know what? Maybe there's something we can look at to see to attract some other diverse cultures in. With okay, the- so yeah. what you're saying is important. And so what the way you describe the situation for this man, the way you described it, sounds totally unfair. Yeah. And the way you described it, also sounds like he was set up to think that this was unfair as well because nobody should be telling you yeah no manager should be telling you you're great for this job but we can't give it to you because you're not a person of color 
Because really, when you think about it, that's not doing him any. No, that's not doing him. It just makes him angry. It just makes him angry. And you're also poisoning the work environment for the next person that gets hired who happens to be of color. Yeah. So the person who told him that is irresponsible. Yeah, 100%. Two, two I think the challenge with, with us in our society, like I said, this is, this is like, we need to have more conversation. We need to talk to each other more. We need to have more situations like this. We need to have more friends that are diverse, right? What ends up happening in my experience is most of us, not you, yeah. Because you live in a household of people that are different culture and ethnicity than you, yeah. right? But a lot of us don't. And so a lot of us, we work in our workplaces and we go home to people that look like us and all of our friends look like us yeah. and all of our family looks like us, right? And so when you are now put in a position to hire people, because you have this familiarity with people that look like you and act like you and come from the same background as you, you are going to more gravitate to people that remind you of yourself. Okay. You're more tribal. Yeah. Right. You're more tribal in your thinking like, oh, that person is from Trinidad? Yeah, I'm a Trinidadian. He's a Trinidadian. Yeah. 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 Where are you from in Trinidad? Oh, you're from South? I'm from South. Where in South? Uh, Oh, yeah. And so you're like, I know you because you're me and I feel comfortable with more me's around. Yeah, and ends up happening, and like I said, this this can come out in conversation, and and when you talk to people about this, don't make people think that they're racist because they like to be around other people like them. Yeah, no, (laughs) yeah, it's not. No, when you say, and I think it's when you are in a position to do the hiring, and you as a person who says, you know, I like people who are from the same culture as me, but I. Don't like those people that are not from the same culture as me. In yeah. fact, even when they apply for the job, I'm not going to give them the job. Yeah, that's when we have a problem. Oh yeah, well, and, and it does exist. Like I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not ignorant to the fact that it, it doesn't exist. I and this is this is where I think the biggest issue with the workplace environment, where you know the lack of. Uh, diversity, especially in higher end positions, it's not because people of color or different races aren't qualified. I yes. don't think so. I think it's because through generational, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Mm-hmm. No one in my family, in any level, has ever been CEO of any fucking. Place, yes. Right. Yes. So. Through and, and this could be said for a white family too. It's not just a color. Yes. So along this line of growing up in generation, 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 it becomes a thing in the family where it's if it's it might not even be achievable because you haven't seen anybody do it. Yeah. Right? No network. Your network no, is no, no, exactly. Network. Whereas in some families, uh, the children grow up seeing mom and dad. CEO, seeing mom and dad, high up executive. So they know that these things are achievable through hard work and determination. Mm-hmm. And I think where we're lacking is that in communities that are, are maybe uh, less uh, fortunate communities, like there's not enough money in them, where they don't see mom and dad achieving these things. So they don't mm-hmm. think it's achievable. Where it is achievable. And yes. I don't and I don't and I don't think that every you know, major corporation is racist and is hiring only white people. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that is the case. I think it's a case where 
these super qualified people of color and different races, genders, whatever the hell you want to classify nowadays, mm. they just don't grow up in a system where they believe that they can achieve those things. So they mm-hmm. never put themselves out there. You mm-hmm. know that old saying like, uh, you have to set your, you have to fail to, to get, yep. right? So they always think they're going to fail. So they never put themselves, they never put their, their, their dollar in the pot. They never mm-hmm. put their resume in the pile, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you put your resume in the pile, most times it'll probably get pushed aside. But it only takes one time to change that generational think thinking mm-hmm. in, a, mm-hmm. in a family. And it doesn't matter what color you are or what country you come from. And I think that it could be said for you can find these examples in every family and everything. Yeah. Once we – I think the – this is not solvable by – saying every company has to hire a certain amount of colored people. I don't think that will solve the issue. I think the issue yeah. goes into you have to we have to go into communities where we identify these that there is this kind of problem and show mm. these kids and show these young adults that if you work hard these even though your parents or your grandparents or your cousins haven't achieved this. Mm. If you put in the work and you have the skill level to do it, mm. you can achieve this. Right mm-hmm. now, obviously, we there are some racist assholes out there. Like, let's not mm-hmm. uh, that exists. But mm-hmm. what I, what I what I'm trying to get at is that people need to start seeing themselves in these positions and yeah. going for them, right? Mm-hmm. And put and, and you know, I'll use myself as an example. In mm-hmm. I live in I grew up in a brown Guyanese home. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Guyanese people, athletic-wise, are good enough for slamming dominoes on a table. That is the extent of athletic genetic ability. Oh, no, <laughs> cricket, soccer. no cricket, soccer, soccer. What? Right? Well, when was the Guyanese soccer team? No, no. Stop! Stop! No? Just stop! Just stop! No. Oh. Okay, all right, man. Cricket, no. I'm making a generalization, obviously, (laughs) right? But so I grew up in a a family and a system where being an athlete Mm -hmm. was not a valued career path. I grew up in a house where, you know, obviously a lot of people are doctors or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, lawyers. I grew Mm -hmm. up in that. You got to go to school. You got to get a Mm -hmm. four-year degree. You got to become this. You got to, you know, you know. Nowhere along the line did it say be an athlete. Nowhere along the line. Whereas in other families, you know, that's a thing, right? You yeah. know, I'm sure in the John Jones household, the Jones brothers, that was a thing, right? Yes. You, you, you all are athletes, right? In my house, it wasn't a thing. And this is and this is what I'm trying to get across is I had to work incredibly hard and overcome mm-hmm. a lot of racism on both ends by colored mm-hmm. people and by white people. Mm-hmm. to even break through in sport because of yeah. the generalization that my own people put on mm-hmm. brown people being an athlete, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and what I'm trying to get at is that I didn't just say, okay, I can't do it because nobody has ever done it. I mm-hmm. put it in my head, I want to achieve this thing. Now, was it easy? No. People who have been following along my journey know that, you know, my ass has been broken and beaten to right. get to this spot right. that I am, right? Yes. But I didn't let that narrative that was generational, it was literally generational, 
I didn't let it stop me from pursuing my goal. Like my wife tells me every time, she's like, she'll she'll, she'll look at my extended family. She's like, yeah, you're not supposed to be an athlete, actually. Yeah. <laughs> she's yeah. like, you worked incredibly hard to get yes. the things that you have. And I think that the young folks that are out there, whether it be person of color or not, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm raising a half white kid, and I'm going to mm-hmm. tell them the same thing. Like, right. if you want to do something, mm-hmm. you're going to do it. And this comes back to our conversation about education. Yeah. I am now, as a person who's went through the university system, I am now in favor of specialization over education. Mm-hmm. I will gladly tell my daughter and son that university is probably maybe not the best option for you. Yes. When they're 16, I know exactly. If they can tell me, Dad, I want to bake cupcakes, Yeah. I will say, you know what? All right, you're not going to university. We're going to get you into culinary school. you got to learn some crap. You can't just right. bake cupcakes. But mm-hmm. I want you, by the time you're 18 – Baking the best damn cupcakes in the world, and by the yes. time you're 22, having a you know successful cupcake business, whatever. Yeah. By the time you're 25, figuring out a formula that you can market and send out, and by the time you're 30, you're set, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you know the more traditional way of thinking is, oh, I want to be a baker. Uh, well, you got to go to school first, mm-hmm. do a general arts degree, and really mm-hmm. find out if that's what you want to. Now you're mm-hmm. 21, and life is pretty you're, you're thirty thousand yeah, dollars in debt, and mm-hmm. now you got to get a job because you got to pay this thing off. And yes. only when you're 30 years old, you revert back to, "Hey, I was really good at that baking thing. Let me take that up again." So, Steve, you know the reason why I think, and, and this is a great thing. Like I know we're hovering on this education thing because, yeah. like I said, we are we are individual men of color, and so and we've done the whole what was expected of us from our family route, which was go to school, get the undergrad, and yeah. the undergrad would do this. And you know what? I'm not going to complain. My undergrad opened up lots of doors for me. Yeah, right? same for me. Yeah. Um, but because you're now a business owner, you see the value more so in developing business acumen yes. over uh, education, theoretical education. Because, yeah. you know, if, if you're a good business person, you can make money anywhere on the planet. You right. can sell water whale, right? Like, like you don't, you don't need a degree to be good at making cupcakes. No. And then being good at marketing them, you don't have to have a degree with that either. No, you don't. Right? Cupcakes can, if you know how to get people to buy your cupcakes, you don't need to go to school. Yeah. I think, like, we keep coming back to education, right? And even in the workforce and stuff like that, right? Like. We talk about, I'm a double back. So when you talked about not needing to make rules for hiring certain kinds of people, and that's not beneficial, I would agree with you. But I think the nature of government, because the goal of all government is to get reelected. Yeah, they have to put you in want, their, their, they have to, uh, they made a promise, want, they made a promise, right. and they have to fill it, right? And you hire you as a government. You put together these committees. They do the research. They come back to you and say, "Hey, listen, brown guys and black guys are not getting a lot of these opportunities, and we're giving these companies and these businesses money to do to be more diverse. They're not doing the diverse thing. They're hiring their friends and their family. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to make it that they have to do this. Yeah. Now that's a clumsy way to do it. It's clumsy, right? But that's typically what government does. 
they make policies, they make rules, and they say to people, you guys work it out. And it ends up becoming really not the ideal. Well, this same what thing, I the same thing, sorry, sorry, I don't, don't want to end yeah, well, no, the same, the same thing you're talking about can be applied to the whole defund the police thing. Uh, uh, uh-huh. Right? I mean, uh, so sorry, continue. I'll talk about that after, but it, I was just yeah. sorry, what were you saying? So I was going to say, I believe it would be better for these businesses to take an effort to recruit. So, you're an athlete. You know that college universities and professional sports teams send out scouts and they'll scour the earth yeah. to the next great diving in the rough. Yeah. The next, next great. Yeah. They don't care where the player is. They'll go to like the center of the earth. If they find somebody who has the giftings and the ability to do this, yeah. right? There's a machine in place to turn you into a professional athlete. Yeah. Right? There's a machine. There's, there's, they know how to do it. They have the coaches. They have the trainers. They have the staff. They have the, you know, yeah. they, they have that. Yeah. They just want people with the raw potential. So I think we should be focused on recruiting people into the right fields. And so because you're a good scout, you don't care what color they are. You don't care where they come from. You care about, can this person become profitable? Can they make the, the team or the business money? And so I think if we took that approach, we would see that there would be more diversity because with diversity comes different approaches to solving problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's really what you want. You want, you know, you want people to give you a new approach to solving a problem that the rest of your team can't solve because they all think the same. Yeah. You bring something that's a little different. Like, have you considered this? Oh, I never thought about that. Well, the reason why I thought about that is because I'm from this community and this is how we solve our problems here. Yeah. Ah, okay. You know, like, so, like, to me, the approach that's been taken is clumsy, right? But in a sense, that's what government does. They do clumsy things. They kind of just make these policies and just slap them on everybody and say, work it out. They're like, oh, COVID is, COVID is, 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 is oh, this, this COVID is a problem? Okay, let's lock everything down, keep everyone in their house, and it's going to go away. Yeah. That's clumsy. It's clumsy. And, and I mean, those blanket, um, those blanket things are done with regards to every issue. It's not just COVID right. and it's not just uh, equity in the workplace. It comes to, mm-hmm. you know, the policing issue. It comes to, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the policing issue is one thing I have a big uh, problem with. And like, I'm not defending police or I'm not, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. defending, like I'm not on one side or the other. Like mm-hmm. I do believe there are shitty police officers. Yes. I do believe there are shitty human beings of all yes. colors, right? Like, like, I think one of the biggest things that the media has done, especially in the last year and a half when mm-hmm. the, the race thing has come up to the forefront, is they mm-hmm. have forgot to include the statistics of the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I understand that black people get shot by police officers. Mm-hmm. So do white people. So do mm-hmm. white people. So do all mm-hmm. other people, right? It's, yep. not, it's not an isolated incident. What we, yes. need to, what we need to look at is two people who have skilled in martial arts. We have to look at why are these decisions being made? Like I, I'm going to use – there was the girl um, 
I forgot what state it was, but uh, the police officer shot her because she was uh, in a stab. She was about to stab somebody. I, do you remember? Yes. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. state. And now I watched the video. Okay, I watched the video of the police officer pulling up. I watched the girl pull a knife, mm-hmm. and I watched him fire the shots. Yeah. That whole thing happened in five seconds. Yes. Now I'm going to straight up say I defend that police officer because in that that specific situation, every situation is different. That specific mm-hmm. situation, she, when he pulled up and got out of the car, she was holding a knife towards another human being. Yeah, one hundred percent. I don't guess that's yeah. a good shoot. That's a good shoot. That that was a hundred percent. But it became a race thing, a white cop and a black yes. cop, right? Yeah. When really, what that should have only been the only discussion should. That been is was he right to disarm or discharge his firearm at that time? Mm-hmm. And the answer mm-hmm. is yes. Yes, it's unfortunate that she died. Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate. But when you hold a knife to another human being, right? Me and you are combat experts. You know, if someone's holding a knife, to, regardless of the fact that I know how to fight and I can defend myself, they can kill there, there is a good ninety-five percent chance I'm going to die in that situation. So yes. if I have to, I have to end it. And, you know, and so when it comes to the police thing, like New York mm-hmm. was the biggest piss off to me in, in all because the, that, that mayor was, was a, a total douchebag on how, how he handled things. But mm-hmm. the policing issue, yes, there are shitty police. And I actually have family members who are in the police force. So like there are great cops and there are bad cops. I think the first and foremost thing that we should do or take into account when we talk about police officers is mm-hmm. training, is training, mm-hmm. training, 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 and mm-hmm. not 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 diversity training. Not I'm talking about physical training. As somebody who gets into a cage and fights, right? Mm-hmm. That is a control chaos environment. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. What, what I'm using it as an example, right? yeah, a real life situation with guns and knives and mm-hmm. gangbangers and shit. Way more fucking chaos, chaos than one, anything that I have to deal with. One hundred percent. A police officer goes to work every day, and that is not the regular occurrence. When mm-hmm. it happens, there's that human instinct that you know mm-hmm. panic, right? So, mm-hmm. in my opinion, how do how do me and you, as you know, when you're training jujitsu, how do you get ready for a jujitsu competition? You roll. Right, you put yourself in shitty situations. You put yourself mm-hmm. in full mount. You let a higher mm-hmm. belt mount you so you know how to get mm-hmm. out. So that when mm-hmm. it does happen, you're not shocked. So what yeah. happens to a lot of these officers is they go in day to day. They do the patrolling. They're, they're not getting that stimulation. But mm-hmm. then when it happens, regardless of color, and, I, and I, I'm not saying there are some racist cops, obviously. No, no, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to you. When, yeah. when this thing happens, when this event happens, this is not something that they're doing every day. Mm-hmm. So they, a lot of these people have knee-jerk reactions to things. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not defending like the knee on the neck with, with whatever. That, that's, that's a whole different, that's a different yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, we can agree that every circumstance is different. Every circumstance is different. Let, let me, let me, um, Share my thoughts with this yeah, because right. I, I mean, policing is complicated. Because first of all, <laughs> my my idea, my my thoughts on 
policing in North American cultures. First of all, police are involved with way too many aspects of interacting with people. People call the police for way too many things. Yes, 100%. Like, like a police officer can go be called because someone's dog is trapped in their fence. Yeah. Police officer can be called because someone's kid is not listening to them. A police officer yeah. is called. When someone is hanging from a tree, a police officer is called. When well, there's a man and a wife are fighting, and it's just loud. right. Yeah, there's. I sit on a committee that deals with different issues in the community, and the police are on the committee. And most people, most of the issues that are brought to the committee are issues where the police are looking for alternative ways to deal with it. They want to provide support to the people. Like, believe me, I don't think police officers are walking around looking to kill black people. No, I don't. Or, think or so. men. I know they're not doing that. Right. No. Um. I think the challenge becomes when police officers are dealing with situations that as a police officer, your, tra- your, your training limits your ability to respond to things in a certain way. Yeah. Because remember, their training is not to talk people down. They're training to de-escalate. Yeah. But if someone has a knife in their hand, they have to pull out their gun. Oh, right? You have to. You have to. Yeah. And so I think that, for one, when people talk about defund the police, clumsy, clumsy conversation. What they should say is, we need to find alternative way to deal with some of the issues, the crisis that police are called to that don't require police. So maybe we need to take take money out of the police budget to then create maybe uh, another tier of officer that will deal with the stuff that has nothing to do with needing someone with a gun. Yeah. So the people with guns only deal with the stuff that need people with guns, and the other officers deal with the stuff that doesn't require that. Like at the same time, though, you still like, like you still need like. Let's use, you an, do example, need let's use an example of a crazy person. You get a you get a call for someone who's having a mental episode, who right. may or may not hurt somebody or themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While you do need to say, I I agree with you. I think we do need a special, specialized person to de-escalate the mental aspect of some of these situations. Mm-hmm. That person either needs to be well trained as well, because just as quickly as easy as it is to say, "Oh, we're going to send someone in to talk to them," that mm-hmm. asshole can pull something out and shoot some shoot up the whole yeah. place, right? So there needs to be, yeah, those. They need to either be trained in both, or you need to be able to send one of them in both, so that they can both equally respond. You stand back, let me deal with this. If it escalates, they have them. Yeah. So there is a there is there is a team within um, the police force in Toronto. I can speak to. There is um, a team, a crisis response team that deals yeah. with if a mental health nurse, along with a police officer, that try to deal with issues where they're called in because somebody is. Either the mental health episode, but also potentially need the police involvement. Yeah. Guess how many people are on that unit? It's like maybe two or three people. Yeah, it's not and <laughs> we have a city of like three and a half million people, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, like, like we said, so defund the police is clumsy. It's clumsy. It's like a slogan, right? It's a catchphrase. It's a catchphrase. Right. To people together to band together for the whatever agenda that they're trying to push. But really, what those people are asking for is. The Toronto police budget is a billion dollars. You know yeah. that, right? Yeah, it's a huge budget. Yeah, eighty percent of that is police salaries. 
Yeah. Rightly so. Police officers deserve to get paid. They deserved. They deserve, They have a difficult job. Yeah, it's a tremendously so, difficult job. What What people wanted to say was, how do we take some of that billion dollar budget and allocate some of that money to get more mental health people to go alongside with the police? Yeah. Because in a lot of cases we see where the people are like, oh, they didn't have to shoot the person. A lot of times police come on the scene because somebody called and said something like, this guy's walking around with a knife. They're coming there already primed, thinking this is a dangerous situation. Yes, 100%. They, They get there, right? And they don't know what they're dealing with. But the problem came from the call. Yeah, the, 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 right. the, yeah. The initial uh, alarm was raised. Like you, you know what I mean. So you're coming in as a police officer, and you're being told, "Hey, you got to go to the situation. Some of their potential mental health issues has a weapon. So what are you going to do? You're going to default to your training. Your training tells you you need to make sure certain things are in place. Make sure you secure this person. Make sure there's no people around that can get hurt. You control you know, the situation. Do, yeah, yeah. You come on. And you take control of the situation, right? The person with mental health issues is not listening to you, yeah. right? You have to make those decisions, which to us seem like a long time, but to you is like, sir, I need you to stand there. He's walking toward you, sir. I need you, sir. I need yeah. you. You pull out your gun. He's not respecting the fact you're pointing a gun at him. Yeah. He's still coming at you. See, like, like, let's just be let's just be human, okay? Take the police away from it. Take the police away from it. Yeah, if I'm on the street and I see somebody and they have a knife in their hand, they're walking towards me, right? I'm yeah. not a police officer, but I happen to have a gun, yeah. right? I happen to have a gun. Yeah, I'm pointing the gun at you. I'm like, yo, you better back up, homie. Yeah, back. You're still coming at me. I'm a shoot. <laughs> Somebody's getting shot. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Not me. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And I'm I'm a regular person thinking that way. Yeah. So I understand, like, police officers are trained to do certain things. But at the end of the day, situations arise where someone is coming at you with a weapon, right? I'm shooting them because they're going to try to kill me. If you see the gun, you don't fear the gun. I have a problem with that. Yeah. And right? and the gun is one. A gun situation is one thing. I, like, I, 90, I, was, I don't want to say 90, 95% of the time, I am more on the side of the officer when a gun and a gun is like a, a suspect is pointing a gun towards the officer. Oh, no, like you're done. There's only very few cases where I will say, eh, maybe you shouldn't have done that. But when we come to knives and other things like that, here's my thought on this is that when I look at as somebody who studies martial arts, studies fighting, and then my business is in health and fitness, right? Mm-hmm. When I look at a police officer now, I, I don't I don't like sizing people up, but I'll look I'll look at an officer and I'll look at him and I'll mm-hmm. know. I'll know that if shit hit the fan, I will come out of the room alive and he won't be gone. Like Right. And and I'm I'm not saying this because I'm trying to big myself up. What I'm trying to say is that No, no you're a trained professional athlete. What I'm trying to say is that when I look at law enforcement right now, what the disconnect I see is that there's no mind body connection to the job. It's a mm-hmm. job to some of these people. Whereas to me, if I'm an like, if I'm a police officer, I want to take care of my body. I want mm-hmm. to be healthy. I want to make mm-hmm. sure I get a good night's sleep. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that when I get to work, I have healthy meals so that you know I'm not eating hamburgers during the day 
and I'm not feeling slug. Like all of those things, all of those healthy aspects of living contribute to decision making, right? And, I, and I, let, me, let me ask your ask your people that are police officers. If those are the things you're thinking about, right? You would be a rarity because policing is as much administrative yeah. as it is the physical thing. I know, and, and, and but here, here's my point. Here, this is what I'm trying to get at: is that, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying all officers need to be healthy. Yeah. And what I'm trying to say is that if we took some of the funding, and I'm not taking, I'm saying a little bit. I'm saying a little mm-hmm. bit, and we gave police officers say you needed to train jujitsu twice a week. Mm-hmm. Once a week, you needed to go do some boxing. Once a week, you need to uh, something physical to help sharpen those mental skills and to keep their body and awareness and all mm-hmm. these things sharp. I believe, I strongly believe, we will see a decline in a lot of these situations where we. I'm with have, you. And I'm with and, you. And I'm not saying jujitsu is the end all be all. What I'm saying is that. Now these officers are not doing the wake up, go to work, put on the uniform, mm. go do a third day. No, they are now it's it's almost like continuing education, right? Yes. But but yeah. they're rewarded for it in the fact that they get skills outside of work. They mm-hmm. are able to stay mentally sharp. What mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time is when these situations happen, like I said, these are chaos situations. And it's a yes. regular individual thrown mm-hmm. into a chaos situation. And mm-hmm. I use this example with my clients, right? Because someone who I'm teaching boxing for the first time, I'll be like, okay, when you block up and the punch will come to their face and they'll freak out, right? Mm-hmm. Just that, that, that. Mm-hmm. Because I spend eight hours a day sometimes mm-hmm. having shit fly at my face. Right. So I'm very comfortable with it and I know how to react. Police yeah, officers, exactly. Police officers don't have that conditioning. They go mm-hmm. through basic training. And then they get mm-hmm. into the job, right? Mm-hmm. And the job doesn't entail that continuing education. Like that, if you don't see violence happen to you on a daily basis, when it does happen to you, you're gonna freak out. So oh yeah. I, so and and I think that is one of the biggest issues when it comes to these major policing issues. When you have these big, high-profile cases, is that, and I'm not defending the police officers because some of them are straight-up assholes. Right, mm-hmm. but for a lot of the time, it's just we need to give these people more tools to do their job. Mm-hmm. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. We don't need to defund them. We need to reallocate what we're doing. That see, and that's and that's and that what you just said right there. Yeah, that's what the real word. That's what people are really asking for. Yeah, like I said, defund the police became a clumsy slogan, but what they're really asking for is that the defund the police came. Because people said, if the police don't want to go along with the reallocation, let's take away then, then take away their money. Yeah, which is and not so a solution. Became, <laughs> no, it's not a solution. But that became like, hey, you're asking for public dollars to to continue to be poli- to continue to have policing. Well, we as the public are saying to you, we want to allocate some of that money for better training, yes, for alternative measures, for all that stuff. And if the police say, well, no, no, we don't, we don't want to do that. It's like, no, 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 no. no we, the public, yeah, <laughs> who pay you. pay for you. Yeah, we want that. It's either you do this or we take that money away. Yeah. And so that became the argument. Obviously, a police force does not want to lose their budget. 
Well, I mean, right. look, look at what happened in Seattle. Seattle and New York are two of the biggest examples of what happens when you fucking take away the budget, right? But uh, listen, don't. I think there is a lot of, um, in in some ways, the police union and the police forces, they have, their battle is with the administrators that run the city. And so they'll use that to scare people. Like whatever, whatever, Whenever there's time to renegotiate police budgets and stuff, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden people start talking about, hey, well, we need a police officer in the road. Like, hey, there's not enough cops around. You don't want to have a bank robber and there's not a police. Like, no, that's always used as a scapegoat whenever there's a... Yeah, right. The yeah. fear mongering. The fear. The fear. Defund the police. The criminals are going to run wild. And, hello. Most, like, we in North America, let's, let me do We in Canada slash Ontario, even small GTHL, we have we live in safe, safe city. Yeah, hundred percent. We we live just like I said, the city of Toronto. The budget for the police is about a billion dollars. Yeah, and rightfully so. It should be that high for the amount of population. Right. Yeah. The, and like I said to you, I work with the police to my job, and I'm telling you, the police force they're interested in alternative ways to solve problems. Of course. One hundred percent. Yeah. Like I sit on the tables. I hear the stuff that's brought to the table by the police. Police officers are looking for solutions that don't require them to come in and throw handcuffs on people. So I don't doubt that they're interested in alternative ways. Yeah. And they've taken steps to problem solve. It's the politics that go along with it. That's, that's what you have to yeah. it's, it's, it's the tricky politics and the, you know, the negotiations with the city and, you know, and, and this and that, and oh, like Mike McCormick, and he's the, the the head of the police union is arguing with the police chief, and and all these different things that have nothing to do with we and the public. Yeah, and I mean, and and I understand that when people say defund the police, I understand it's out of frustration, but I, I don't yes. I don't agree with the term, but I understand yes. it's out of frustration, and when. The frustration is at the police when really it should be at the politicians. It shouldn't be directed yep. at the police. Like obviously, there's certain officers that you know punish. They they, mm-hmm. do they do, but the frustration should be aimed at the people that are providing the funding and allocating it towards. And, and I think that you know, I mean, media has a big role to play in it, where they you yep. know they make it seem like you know this is a police issue, and it is a police issue, but it's also we want to solve the issue we have to hold the people who are supposed to be accountable accountable and that yes. is that is the politician and the people mm-hmm. who are calling the shots right mm-hmm. and uh and it, i mean it, 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 we can go on for hours and hours and hours about that but i mean when it boils down to it i mean it comes to in my opinion i think that the fo- police officers need more training they need yes. more training they need more tools at their disposal they need more help mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think it comes to also their well-being. I think that there needs to be more, uh, you know, for, I'm going to use this thing. This is a hypothetical situation, but mm-hmm. say a police officer responds to a scene and, you know, nobody dies, but there's a little bit of violence. He had to do stuff that to, to apprehend this, whatever mm-hmm. that person is a regular person. We have to figure, I think we lose this human connection. Now they're yeah. going to go home to their wife and their kids. And mm-hmm. that violent situation that they had that day is not 
something that they are going to forget anytime soon. PTSD, man. PTSD, right? And they're going to hold on to that. And then yes. should that call come again, the response will not be the same because no. they know what happened last time, how they felt mm-hmm. last time, and they and this is this is a, and this is a building block, a building block mm-hmm. to something more drastic where somebody actually dies, right? Yeah, no, I hear you. And so what I think that another factor that needs to be put into place is when certain officers answer certain calls, like uh, specific situations, whether it be a suicide. Like it can't be good for any human being to respond to a suicide call, Mm -hmm. seeing a dead body lying Mm -hmm. on a floor that's Mm -hmm. somebody, you know, those happen every day. Right. Yeah. For people who don't understand, okay, I'm going to give them an example. Like in 2019, me and my wife went away to Collingwood for uh, a weekend. When mm. I came back, a work I was working at a gym at the time. Uh, somebody mm. I was working with told me he lives in the same area as me. It's like, dude, did mm. you see what happened on the weekend? I'm like, no, what the hell happened? I was away. Somebody from the building, literally at the end of my street, jumped out mm-hmm. of the building, killed themselves. Right. Oh wow. The very next week. Three doors or two, three buildings down. Somebody else did the same thing, right? Wow. My friend happened to see both of the, not see them, but yeah, in the area for both of the events, yeah. right? Yeah. The second the event, he asked the police officer. He's like, dude, like, this is the second time in like two weeks. Like, this is a lot. He's like, the officer said to my friend, if the public actually knew how many people were committing suicide a day, they would think they were under an epidemic. Yeah. Right? They think there was a so so when I'm saying that for this reason is like imagine those officers responding to those calls. Yeah. They so a neighbor calls I heard a loud bang, my neighbor something happened next door. The officer is the first one on scene and he's yep. a bloodbath. Somebody who slit their yep. wrist and their blood everywhere. You do not think he's carrying that shit when he goes home? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And that's that's not being addressed. So the next time a violent situation comes up, they react differently because you're protecting yourself. And eventually, sometimes it leads to a bad decision. Yes, bad choice. Listen, what you're seeing is a reality that a lot of us are aware of, but sometimes we don't remember. And I think that, like you said, the training, um, the, the, the services that are available for officers who are experiencing PTSD and tra- trauma and trauma-related issues. Because you're right. Yeah. They see the worst of the worst, right? They're called in for the dead baby in the bathtub. They're called in for the man beating his wife. They're called in for the parent beating their child. Yeah. They're called in for the suicide. Like, that could all happen in one week. Yeah. Like, you could be called into all those situations in one week, right? And so you're right. That is going to have an effect on your... On, on your, like, on your, your compassion, yeah, on your heart, right, and so it makes you harder. Yeah, so this is a challenge, right? Because I think in a lot of ways, a lot of times, the police don't do themselves favors by never admitting when they're wrong. Well, you, well they don't so, want to, obviously, right? Because because there's liability with that, right? Yeah, liability. So if a police officer makes a mistake on the job and somebody gets hurt, yeah, right. If they say, "Yeah, you know, my bad, that guy that it, it, it was," cool. do you know what trouble they're going to get in? Yeah, a lot. Do you know what yeah. trouble the police force? Yeah. And so what ends up happening is 
to the public, the police say, nothing, nothing is to here. Nothing was wrong. Our officer did the right thing. And everyone's like, no, that's not the right thing. No, 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 no. SIU came in, we determined, we did an investigation. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? Everything's good. Everything's good. We, we we investigated and everything's fine. And the public then becomes like, oh, like, you guys, it's you versus us. When yeah. you guys do wrong, nobody checks you. But when we do wrong, you guys come and check us. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that, like like you said, like, if if the police let people know that, hey, this job is so hard that we're going to make lots of mistakes. Yeah. And honestly, when you think about it, it doesn't happen as often as you would think it would happen. No, statistically, right? these situations are no, very, very small. Yeah. But if you're the victim of the police issue, that's, that'll mess your life up. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it, it's it's like policing is... It's it's a it's not an easy conversation. It's not an easy set of solutions. No, it's a hard it's a hard job to first of all, and then the the issues that are going on with it. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that some of these things are coming out, but I'm also saddened because I know that, like we just talked about, it won't be solved with the current uh, politicals that we have in both in both countries. Yeah, it won't yeah. be solved with the leaders that we have in both countries. But before before we wrap this shit up, there's one thing yeah. I, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about because there's an experience that you've had that many people don't have, and and this is we're going back to martial arts here. Um, mm-hmm. Your judo black belt, that yeah. you have you had the opportunity to go overseas to Japan and study, yeah, and so that was something I always wanted to pick your brain about because it, it's something that I mean I think a lot of athletes, not just athletes, people in general, like traveling to another country to learn a specific art, whether it be culinary, whatever. Uh, yeah. How was that experience for you just being able to do that? Listen, man, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Yeah. Uh, I would encourage anyone to do it. So I did. I did actually didn't go to Japan to learn martial arts. I wanted to teach English because my desire was to come back and go into teaching. So I wanted to get the experience. Um, it's just fortunate for me that the school I went to, high school I was teaching at, had like a high level judo black belt. Yeah. Right? He had been a coach. He had helped to coach the French national team. So a lot of international experience and stuff. And he 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 put me on a path and said to me, like, hey, you know, if you stick with me, um, I'm going to make you a second degree black belt before you leave Japan. And I was kind of like laughing because, yeah. you know, I was like, I just want to like try it, you know? But it was, it was probably, I've never done something that hard before in my life and not even since like the kind of training that I had to do that I left, sometimes I left training sessions and my hands are just shaking. Shaking. You know, know, like, you know, you know, you work so hard, your nervous system is fried. Shut down. Yeah. Right. And, you know, like I still get that to this day. I still get that to this day. Right, and yeah. so that level of intensity, you know, coming from someone who did no martial arts training at all, right? And I went there as an adult, and so I was training with high school kids. But even though I was physically stronger than them, yeah, they had been doing judo since they were like five. Yeah, so they were talking so, so much better. Yeah, they were. I'm talking girls. Girls were throwing me, like over. <laughs> Head over heel, just yeah, just legs in there, bam. And so it was one of the greatest experiences in my life because 
Japan, the culture itself is not violent, but the outlet that martial arts provide is the reason why I can see why they're not violent. Yeah. Because they're very serious about the martial arts and the martial arts culture. Yeah. And it was like I said, one of the one of the greatest things, you know, one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of. And that's what pro, that's what allowed me to even con- continue training martial arts and go into jujitsu. Yeah. And it helped my jiu-jitsu a lot. So So um you saying that that part of the Japan culture, why don't they have more high level fighters then? Jiu-jitsu or MMA or what just in general, like in martial arts, they—I mean, I—they do have some good guys, but I'm saying, I know the background that they have there and the tradition of martial arts that comes out of that country. Mm-hmm. Like this is—I'm asking this as a serious question because I don't yeah. never—I've never been there. Mm-hmm. For somewhere with such a rich history of martial arts, mm-hmm. um, why is it that you know the Western world is producing the most? best martial or the most i wouldn't say the best because it's it's a mm. uh, it's completely subjective but I, like more champions yeah more champion level martial artists in in all martial arts than you know japan is there is there a reason for that do you think yeah so i think if we if we look at martial arts from the perspective of um so if you look at like the olympic sports yeah if you look at judo japan still runs through like yeah. that's the one country they come. Like when judo has like two hundred countries that participated. When it comes to the Olympics, Japan still pulls most of the medals for individual country. Um, when you look at karate, a lot of the top guys are still coming out of Japan yeah. for karate. Um, Don't get me started on Olympic karate though. That was bullshit. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, even in MMA, the lighter weight categories um, in Asia. So. Yeah. Like I in one FC and, and those organizations, right? Yeah, you have more participation from Japanese and Chinese and Korean and fighters in those kind of installments because you've got to remember it takes a lot of effort for a Japanese person to leave Japan, come to the United States, and kind of build themselves up. Yeah, it's very costly, and the language um, barrier uh, has a lot to do with their marketability yeah. as well. Right? Like even above languages, because you know when I was in Japan. English is like their second language. Yeah. Right? So it's like the way we have French here. Yes. So a lot of people in can speak fluent English. Yeah. Right? Um, but so it's not so much the English. It's more like the culture. Do you want to leave your home and pursue fighting in another country? That's, I think, the challenge, right? Yeah. Um, couple that with martial arts doesn't make you a lot of money. Yeah, it doesn't. No, it, even teaching it doesn't make you a lot of money. People think it's it does. No, it doesn't make you a lot of money. And in Japan, you know, people, it's still the kind of culture where your parents are like, you're not doing that. So do you like, think like, it's more of a cultural thing where uh, parents are more like, you can do it as a way to defend and learn and yes. honor respect? But in terms of. We love the Budo, the Budo component of martial arts, the Budo, yeah. which is the discipline, the honor. That part, that's why kids will do it. That's why it's in the high schools. Yeah. Right? But then it's kind of like, okay, you can become a professional martial artist, but like you're not going to make a lot of money from it. You're yeah. still living at home with your parents. Right? And then when you look at, on a world scale, right, if you look at the countries that have the top um, 
professional martial artists, look at how ethnically and racially diverse those countries are. Yeah. Yeah. Like Japan is US, parts of Europe, right? You're seeing people from all walks of life as martial artists. Yeah. And so that plays a role too, right? You're getting so do more you think, do you think it's because like like well let's take the US for example, right? You have uh super camps all over the US. So yep. do you think it's because you have these environments where these amazing training environments are available. So you have mm-hmm. different athletes from all over the world coming mm-hmm. and some of them end up living there and stay like, for example, Brazilians tend yeah. to flock into the U S and some parts of Canada, like our church is full of Brazilians. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they flock to the U S they end up getting citizenship. So they mm-hmm. end up opening schools there, mm-hmm. training people there. And then, that diversity of skill set now from other parts of the world come to that. You think that that's one of the biggest thing? That that that's definitely a factor. I think too. You have to look at it like, okay, um, so you're Brazilian. You do martial arts, you box, you do jujitsu, whatever you do, yeah. right? You don't make any money doing that in Brazil. No. If you come to the U.S., you would probably make more money. Being a construction worker in the U.S. and you would teach in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, you would 100%. make way more money, and so the opportunity to have a better life is in the U.S. Yeah, because it's a bigger market. The opportunity to make more money is in the U.S., and so that's why those guys come. And because everyone comes, to, and not even Canada, everyone comes to the United States from all over the world. That's why you'll see more capitalism and more commercial success there because you you can say we have the best fighters in the world yes because the best fighters in the world come to the u.s, the US yeah okay I get right? it. yeah I get it. so um but but when you when you look at the culture the martial artist culture not the fighting culture yeah because right? there is not a, a fighting culture in japan to the same degree that it is um in North America, right? Yeah, because the, the culture itself is not overly violent. No, um, and that's one of one of my martial one, arts cultures. One of the things I've always admired about uh, the Japanese culture is if if you ever watch a fight in Japan, it's silent. Mm-hmm. The arena yeah. is silent, right? And then when somebody does like a guard pass, they'll right. clap, right? Um, mm. And it's a big difference than in North America. In North America, if two people are on the floor, stand them up, let them fight, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in, and what I'm trying to get is that mm-hmm. in, and I think this can be said for a lot of Asian countries, is that the fans, so the people in the stands, have a general knowledge of actual martial arts. Yeah. So they appreciate what's going on in that ring and mm-hmm. cage a lot more. Whereas mm-hmm. in North America, that's not necessarily the case. It's more of a blood sport, right? Yeah. And, you know, which is mind-boggling to me because, you know, if you watch MMA and you see two guys on the ground, they're like, stand them up, let them punch. I'm like, well, if that's what you wanted, why isn't kickboxing a lot bigger in the U.S.? It's mind-freaking-boggling that – I know, I know. That's what it is. It's all about the money. But, like, if you wanted to see two people stand up and kick each other and punch each other in the face – why are we? Why, why isn't Glory that much bigger in the U.S.? Why isn't K1 and that kind of style fighting bigger in the U.S. and North America? And it's 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 silly to me that it's. I I think that 
boxing in the UK, boxing in the US, is such a part of the of the culture and the, the ideas of manhood. So, um, punching people and like being a boxer is like manly. Yeah, you man. know, hit people in the face. I'm not afraid to take a punch. Like it's alpha such a male part, stuff. Yeah, tough alpha male part of the American persona. I'm a tough guy. Yeah, I can punch. Right. Um, kickboxing was never a part of that persona. Okay, I get it. That was an Asian style of fighting. Yeah. Right. Like kickboxing was introduced to North America by other Asian communities. Um, by the Chinese, by the Koreans, by the Thai, by the Japanese and stuff. And so boxing was uniquely, um, or the style of boxing we do was uniquely European and then became American, right? Yeah. I think that that's probably why, like, listen, like Floyd Mayweather can make $30 million fighting Logan Paul. <laughs> Right, that just boggles my mind. Right, he's it's pretty much a sparring session. Yeah, well, you see, there's an appetite for boxing. Mike is gonna do it too. Mike is gonna fight Logan. Oh yeah, 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 he's gonna kill him. Um, but like, like, look how popular MMA is, right? Yeah, and the numbers in boxing have never been better. Yeah, Uh, like, people are still watching boxing. I'm happy about it because for a while. there for a while, boxing was kind of dying down, and yeah, and yeah. It, it and here here here's my issue with the whole YouTube boxing thing. I I don't mm-hmm. care that the Logan Paul brothers are making money. Good for them. Congratulations. It's not going to last too long. Fair play. Man. Ride it till you die. Right. Here's Me, would... here's my concern with what's happening is they're setting a precedent to all these other TikTokers and and college student and regular mm-hmm. dude that you can just you know with minimal training step in a boxing ring and and, and box somebody when, i love that when here's here's my problem with this though and it, <laughs> I it, love it. it started happening last last week somebody died right they did oh, a, really? they did a college boxing night and somebody actually died and that's what's mm. gonna th- what people don't understand is this is not a game no. It's not a sport. It's not. There's no six. As brutal as the NFL is, you get 16 weeks to to prove that you're you know you're the best team in the league, and then you go and play. Fighting is doesn't do that. Fighting is I can't play. I want to tell. I I'm going to say this, and I'm gonna, when I go to a fight, I take out one day life insurance because mm-hmm. there is a strong possibility I incur a severe injury. In oh that. yeah. So like, like injury, like death can happen in many forms, but you're voluntarily going into a ring and fighting someone. A lot of bad crap can happen to you. Yes. And the YouTube boxing sensation crap, it, as good as it is, as fun as it is to watch, it's mm-hmm. only as fun before somebody gets really seriously hurt, and it's already <laughs> starting to happen. And I, I hope that, like, my hope is that I don't want it to stop. But what I hope is that commissions start taking a little bit more responsibility when sanctioning these events and allowing them to happen. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And you know what, Ash? I, I think that even if the commissions start being more rigid, it'll go underground. This, yeah. this, 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 is, 
this is why I'm like, I'm glad. Um, I took up, I started boxing when I was 32 years old. I took up boxing late in life. Yeah. Right. I was really doing jujitsu. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll get a fight in my man. I should know how to box. So, you know, you start learning, training, you go to spar. And, you know, because you're already doing jujitsu, you're probably more athletic than the average person that was walking to a box gym and take the box size class yeah. and like want to punch, right? Yeah. You know, like your pain tolerance is higher. You know, you're more you're more open to the contact, right? So when I first started sparring, I'd spar with like normal guys like myself. Just yeah. that little pit pat, pit pat, pit pat. Right. And then, you know, I think once or twice when I first started, my coach was like, okay. Going with this guy. He's an amateur. He has about 20 something fights. Go with him. I outweighed him to so go in there and you know, just work, just work, just work. And I'll tell the guy, hey, just work with him, you know, work. And you become very quickly aware <laughs> that you know nothing, John. <laughs> that, yeah. right, you know nothing. And, and and you play around with them, yeah, you, yeah, know. you know. Yeah. Because, and that's why I say, like, I, I, it doesn't bother me because when people look at things and say it's easy, and then you go do it with someone who does it, the eye-opening, when you get cracked, the first time you get cracked, yeah. and you're just kind of like, mm, you, bite down your, on your, you bite down your mouthpiece, and the kind of like, that, that, that wave of warmth surrounds yeah. your body. You're like, oh, this, this, this is this is grown man stuff right now. This yeah. is like, <laughs> this, we, yeah. this is this is not just not a joke. Like this is and, grown man stuff. And like, as good as a fighter that I know I am, like I, mm -hmm. I do a lot of my training at Grant's MMA, and our oh, yeah, yeah. Coach RG, he's a brilliant boxing coach. Yeah, probably, I know who you're saying. Probably best in Canada. One of the, if not yeah. best in Canada. And I'll tell this, I'll say this over and over and over and over and over. I know how to strike, right? But then when you tell me, okay, you're only using your hands to box. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Now I'm going against some of our guys who are professional boxers. Yeah, right? different. It's a different ball game. It's 100% different. They're, they're, they're touching me. Where did it come from? By the time I figure out what's happening, they're gone. Now, I'm not saying I can't handle I do handle myself. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that, there's levels to this thing. And yes. and well, I'm good at kickboxing. I'm good at jujitsu. I'm good at those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Boxers are good at boxing, right? So I like, you know, the whole MMA guys going over to boxing to box. Yeah, I get there's money. I understand yeah. the money. I understand the money. But don't t for one second think, as, as a professional MMA fighter, don't for one second think you can walk over to boxing and outbox a boxer. Maybe a Jake Paul, you can. Maybe uh, old Van, uh, Vander Holyfield, like, uh, what's it? Um, yeah. 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 But, but you don't think you're coming over to boxing and you're boxing a Javante Davis and you're going no. to beat him. It's not going to happen. These no. athletes are specialized killers yes. in their sport. And I, as like you said, I enjoy it. It's fun. It's a freak show. It's fun. I just hope that nobody gets seriously friggin' hurt from it because 
I'm telling you right now, if Floyd wanted to, he could have put Logan's brain in oh, scramble. Oh, 100%. 100%. He chose not to, right? <laughs> Listen, I, I think even Tyrone Woodley, I re I watched that fight, and I was like, something's off about what Because I've watched Woodley fight MMA, right? Yeah. And he's never been known to be the best boxer, technical striker. No. But the one time Woodley hit him clean, you see homeboy is like... Yeah, why didn't he go after him? You know what I mean? That's what, I'm like... Sums up. I'm not. Like, I'm not going to go into conspiracy theories about them needing. They, them needing. Is it Logan he fought or was it Jake? Jake he fought Jake. Yeah. Was he, so them needing Jake. Like Jake is Jake needs to win these fights for Triple to keep making money. Yeah. Right. The moment Jake loses, people are like not interested anymore. Yeah. Like we knew that was going to happen. Whatever. So he keeps. They keep having him fight guys who could beat him. Right, potentially, and then he ends up winning. Like even when he fought Ben Askren, Ben Askren came in that fight looking like he just walked out of his. He yeah, just grabbed had a hip, hip surgery the year before. Right, like he he looked the most blubbery I've seen him his entire life. Yeah, right. He he didn't he didn't take the fight seriously. No, right. And so when I watched the Taiwan Woodley fight, I was like, something's off about Taiwan Woodley. Like I don't know, I don't know. He looks, he's not. And it could be a ton of things, right? Yeah. And so, in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I understand boxing. Um, it's entertainment, and so you can't kill the golden goose that lays. You can't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Yeah, no, you can't. But yeah, they, they need Jake to keep winning, to keep drawing more pay per views, so that they can make money. Well, then he better not fight the Fury kid, because then he's he's gonna lose that fight. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Cash out, right? Maybe oh, that's maybe, maybe that's the cash out. Yeah, or, or maybe maybe he wins. Like I, like at the end of like, here's the thing about those two guys is they're actually really good athletes. Like people make uh, yeah. people try to think that they're just you, like they made their name off of YouTube, but they're actually pretty damn good athletes. Yeah, like, I mean, any day you put the paper in front of me, I'd sign it to fight either one of them. But right, uh, and, but think about this actually, if you were. Because those guys are pulling in just from YouTube alone, like seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh yeah, more than right? that. Probably more than that. Okay. So if you're making that much money right now to train and fight Ash, several hundred thousand. Let's say you're making a quarter million a year right now yeah. to train and fight. How much better do you think you'd be? Oh, a lot. You you could have a camp just for you. Yeah. Right. Um, you could go travel. You could travel different parts of the world and go fight and train with the best guys. Yeah. Like, a quarter million dollars a year can buy you a lot of like improvement to your skills. And that's why I'm looking forward to Conor McGregor's comeback very, very much. Because oh, really? Here, here's the thing. Uh, yeah. I, and I'm a huge fan of Conor McGregor. Not because yep. I, and because of how he transcended the game. Some of his yep. actions outside of the octagon questionable. That's uh, another. Doesn't even bother me. Yeah, that, that sells tickets. That sells tickets. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, if I achieved that level, I might have made some of the same mistakes he made. I can't. I can't. I can't speak. That, that's a whole another story. Mm -mm. Here's the thing, though. Other people who have broken their leg in the same manner or suffered severe injuries in that same manner, myself included, mm -hmm. don't have access to the millions and millions and millions yes. and millions of dollars that that man has.
Yes. From the moment he got out of surgery, don't be fooled. He had people working on that leg oh, yeah. night and day, right? He had expensive stem shells juiced up in that yeah. thing. I am excited. Like I'm not saying he's going to come back as the same fighter. Yeah. I'm yeah. saying that with the money that he has, that he has yeah. – congratulations that he has done really well for himself and put himself in that situation – I think that with that money that he has, his comeback will pro- will might surprise a lot of people because of I, I'm I'm sure he's pumped millions of dollars into making that leg better. Right? I'm sure the UFC's pumped millions of dollars. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I I wouldn't don't people are sleeping on him, but I still have a little bit of faith. I think he still has something in there. I think that how is how old is Connor right now? Thirty two. Yeah, he's about the same age as me, so he's, he's not old. No, I think um. And people, I think that people sleep on him like they did with Jose Aldo, because yeah. Jose because Jose Aldo was a dominant champion in his low twenties, right? Yeah, he only really got beat when he was you know twenty seven, twenty eight. Then he yeah. got into his third. He's still a freaking elite fighter. Oh he's yeah, a man. great elite fighter. And he's still young. It's just because he was achieved. So Connor achieved these things at a relatively young age. So yeah. don't be surprised that even though he, the last couple of years he's kind of skill wise uh, fell off because of you know probably external things that have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This might be the time where you know you might see something great. I'm not saying it will be, but you might see one of the best comebacks in sport. And I, I think I think Connor has already cemented his legacy as probably the most influential MMA fighter of the modern era because for one. He won two titles. Yeah. First right? to do it, right? Yeah. Wasn't the first to do it, but... Simultaneously. Yeah. He held them both at the same time. And then, the man, his first professional boxing match, gets yeah. to fight Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> For $100 million. <laughs> makes $100 million. Yep. Like... Who stamped this guy's lottery ticket? Like no, and and, and you know what? And he fought well away, in that fight too. He fought well in that fight. Walks away relatively unscathed. Like he was, he got he got technically knocked out, but he was more fatigued. Like Connor yeah. was done physically. Like yeah, yeah. But I'm just like yo, Connor. He won. He's defeated the Matrix. Yeah, 100%. Right? if he never fights again, he'll still be remembered for the rest of his life. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah, and. I think if he was smart, he wouldn't fight again. But he's going to. He's going to. He's a fighter, right? Yeah. He's relatively young, so he probably makes probably what twenty mil off each fight in the UFC, or at least ten mil off a of UFC fight. Twenty or more with his endorsement, right? Probably. Endorsements, everything. So who's going to walk away from that money? As no. long as you keep paying me, yeah. In the middle, I'll fight once yeah. a year. I'll do it. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. But yeah, I. I with the money that he has, don't be surprised if he does something great. I, and I hope he does, but I, yeah. I, and just for the sake of it. But anyway, yeah. that was a freaking fun conversation. Yeah, man. Anytime, uh, bro, we do it again. Tell everybody how they can um, find your martial arts studio or find, get a hold of you if they want to oh, come listen, train. If you want to come train with me, um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu – I'm at elementaljujitsu.com, E-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-L, jujitsu, J-I-U-J, 
jiu-jitsu.com and I'm located in the Ajax area. Uh, I have adult classes, I have kids classes. Listen, if you just want to drop by and say hello, come by and say hello. I'm there. I'm a friendly guy. Um, yeah, please one come the, join one me. Of the, one of the best. Trust me when I say that. One Listen, of the best. It's my it, pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is a fun conversation. We'll do it again yeah. for sure. And Definitely. Th thank you, everybody, for uh, another fun episode. Grands my gears. Yes, and sir. that's it. Peace out. All, All right. right. Peace out. Hey, everybody. You thank you for watching. Please do me a favor. Click the like below. Share on YouTube. Share on Instagram. Share on Facebook. Spread the word so I can keep creating more content for you. Keep providing you with a great podcast experience. Peace out.